Hey, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. Acts is written uh, by uh, a doctor named Luke, who's obviously one of the authors of the Synoptic Gospels uh, as well. And Luke becomes a historian of sorts, telling us the history of the New Testament church. Uh, the first one-third of the book of Acts really revolves around the uh, personality of Peter, who becomes really the chief apostle uh, of, of the New Testament church. He preaches a message on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 are saved, and, and, and thus begins the story of how we got here. Uh, but the last two-thirds of the book of Acts really revolve around the personality of the Apostle Paul, who has this radical, transformative encounter with God by which he recognizes that that which he has been persecuting is actually Jesus. He has this radical life change, and he goes really from being an antagonizer or terrorist of the New Testament church to its chief proponent. Uh, talking to people, planting, going on three major missionary journeys, and really spreading the gospel to multiple continents, leading to this really first century cultural, spiritual, religious, political revolution that we read about in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 tells us the story behind the story of the planting of the church in Corinth. It, now, you're probably familiar with Corinth because Paul also writes two additional letters that we have, 1 Corinthians and, and 2 Corinthians. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that there is actually a third letter that was originally sent to them that has now been lost. And so Paul is writing uh, 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 a lot to this church in Corinth. Corinth becomes this gateway city. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think about Seattle, like I think about Corinth. It was a gateway city to the region. It was filled with commerce and trade and culture. It was known for pagan idolatry. And Paul planted a church right in the middle of it in Acts 18 tells us that story. So next time you hear somebody talking about the church in Corinth, I want you to think not about 1 Corinthians, but instead about Acts 18, that you would understand the story behind the story. And we read about in Acts 18 the circumstances that God uses, not necessarily the circumstances that he authors, but the circumstances that God uses to put strangers together for the purpose of influence and transformation. And I want you to think about the local church as the construct by which God puts strangers together for the purpose of transformation and influence. That's the crazy thing about church is you become friends with people that you would never normally engage with. You cross paths with people that there would be no other way for you to connect with outside the context of church. That's why I'm such a big proponent of the idea of the church leading the charge on diversity, on, on, on racial unity, because when I look at the church, I see this opportunity for all of the tribes and all of the tongues and all of the nations to come together under the banner of Jesus. See, the church is able to do something that political parties can never do, which is unite people around a common cause. The church is able to do things that arguing on social media can never do, uniting people around a common cause. And so to me, that's why the church has to lead in these areas of uh, social reform because um, the church is God's best blueprint for the development, restoration, and redemption of humanity. It just is. As, as, as we read in Acts 18, you're going to read about three central figures. The first is Paul, and the second is Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are a husband-wife team. Some scholars believe that actually Priscilla is involved in the writing of the book of Hebrews. Although we don't know that for certain, she becomes a central figure in the development of New Testament heroes. For example, a man named Apollos who became one of the chief evangelists of the first century, was mentored and taught and instructed by 
Priscilla. Sometimes I think people take the writings of the Apostle Paul to the New Testament church out of context, and they develop what I would call a rather misogynistic theological view. Like men uh, are the ones who can hear from God, and like we'll have like women around to help clean the church, and, and that's kind of it. And some people actually believe this, and even worse, some people actually teach it. And when you actually take a step back and understand the Bible from a holistic perspective, instead of cherry-picking verses to reinforce your biases, what you see is that Jesus values women, Jesus honors women, and that women are used in roles not just of followership, but of leadership, teaching, and development. Anybody can say amen to that, or is that just me? Is anybody with me this morning? Okay, so it's important that we allow Scripture to inform the way that we interact with society. And so I want my scriptural view or my theological view to inform my sociological view, not the other way around. If you allow sociology to inform theology, then you will spend your entire life trying to be more woke than the liberal next to you. But when you allow theology to inform sociology, you can feel real good about ticking people off on both sides of the aisle because you're grounded on the rock that is higher than you. And see, scripture doesn't fade away. The Bible says that all of earth will fade away, but not one of his words will ever fail. Meaning this, after all of the loud voices have come and gone, after all of the arguments that have been had, do you know what remains? This. And so you got to make a choice in your life. What are you going to build your life on? Because if you end up pledging your allegiance to anything less than this, you are setting yourself up for perpetual disappointments. Anyways, let me, I'll get off that. But in Acts 18, and by the way, you know, we're doing our best, you know, to masks and just about every day there's a new order and, and uh, it's about a full-time job just to keep up with the press conferences. <laughs> I've watched more press conferences in the last six weeks uh, than I have ever wanted to, ever in my entire life, actually. And so, and all of them, we got, you know, new regulations and face masks and, and all of those types of things. In fact, on my way to church today, Lydia, we got, we're just on our way to church and somebody just randomly cussing us out about face masks. And just, I mean, just people have lost their, their minds. And so we're doing our best to encourage people with the masks and encourage people. But can I just, can I just tell you, don't, don't, don't spend your life being angry uh, at wearing a mask in church if you've become a professional at wearing masks all the time anytime you engage with somebody from church. And so for us, it's not about, you know, physical, you know, those types. Of, we allow God to work in the deep places of our life because all of us have to resist the temptation to wear these masks that hide who we truly are when interacting with people around us. You see the parallel that I'm trying to draw? We get so used to pretending to be what we think other people will like or appreciate that we spend our entire life constructing lies to impress people that we don't like, to gain things that we don't need. And so if church can become the place where you just become honest about everything in your life and transparent about the journey you're on. And can I encourage you today that you ought to give yourself enough grace and mercy to take a step back from your, 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 your kind of ontological development and appreciate how far the Lord has brought you. You know, most of us in this room are our own harshest critics. We just are. Yeah, I don't need anybody to criticize me because anything that you say, I've already said it to myself worse 10 times. <laughs> and, 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 and I think for us, we need to have enough grace and mercy for it. Do you know that if you don't extend grace and mercy to yourself, you won't be able to extend it to other people. 
And so for us, we extend grace and mercy to ourselves to be able to take a step back from our journey and recognize, even if I'm not where I should be, thank God I'm not where I used to be. Now I've come a long way. And I think sometimes in this spiritual process, the way that we adjudicate whether or not we're moving forward in spiritual concept, concepts, spirituality is so esoteric. It's hard to define. It's, it's not really quantifiable. It's not a star you get or a degree that you have or a check mark that you receive or a, 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 a certificate that you get from the church that you're a part of. Uh, this kind of spiritual life development, it, it, it's hard to judge sometimes whether or not we're moving in the right direction. And if you had permission today to take a step back from your own timeline and just look at how far you've come over the last 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, I think you would be encouraged that God has actually been working on your behalf and in your life more than you give him credit for. So many of you have come so far. And if we don't give ourselves grace and mercy to continue to develop, we'll stay stuck as a way to insulate ourselves against our own negative interior voices. In Acts 18, starting in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, and Paul went to see them. Now, Claudius was the emperor at this time, and he issued an edict, some say in AD 49, others say in AD 52, but in or around that time period, Claudius, the emperor, issues an edict that all Jews and Christians must leave Rome. He's kicking them out. It's actually the third time that it's happened in the last 100 years. And because of the Jewish conversion, because of Christianity coming on the scene in such a vociferous way, it's creating this cultural upheaval. It's destabilizing, really, the entire political establishment. And so Claudius is concerned about what these Jews and Christians are up to. And so his way to deal with that is to order all of them to leave Rome and go to another city. And so a bunch of them end up in the city of Corinth. And it just so happens that Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla end up in the same place in the same city at the same time. Here's why that's important. In a time of great cultural disruption, God was sovereignly moving people into the right places at the right times. Which means this, when you're playing checkers, he's playing chess. And it's so hard for us to give credit to a God who works in the midst of the chaos of our lives. Because when we're in the midst of chaos, chaos is all that we can see. And yet God, who works so diligently and quietly behind the scenes, working all things together for the good of those who love him, is strategically positioning people in the right places at the right times for the right things. 2020 is a strategic year because what you see as chaos, God sees as realignment. And, and you know, Fred, sometimes we undersell the chaos of Scripture because we're able to view it through a historical lens. We know how it all worked out, so it couldn't have actually been that bad. And the next time that you read scripture, could you develop just a, a little bit more generous quadrilateral for how you understand the historical events of this book? Because for us, we, we fast forward to the end because we know how the story ends. We know Jesus raises from the dead. Yeah, but his disciples are scared to death hiding in an upper room because they think they're next. And guess what? They are. And all of a sudden, a ghost walks into the middle of the room and says, it's me, Jesus, I'm back, just like I told you. And they're freaking out, losing their minds. Thomas doesn't even believe. And it's easy for us to kind of read this through a sanitized lens because we know how the story ends. 
But in the midst of chaos, God is strategically placing people in the right place at the right time for advancement, for influence, and for transformation. It's not that God is micromanaging the moments of our life, but it is true that nothing escapes him. And, 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 and that is what results in the unexpected junctures of our journey. A God who is weaving himself into the human narrative, leading us in the ways that we should go. I've said this before, but it's so true for you to adopt into your theology, your view of God. God doesn't cause the pain of our life, but if we let him, he will use it. Which means this, you don't have to waste your bad moments. And all of us have them. And if you say that you don't have them, you're having a bad moment now because you're lying. <laughs> all of us have tough moments in our life, tough seasons that we walk through. Things that we experience that we would rather not. And it's not that God authors them, it's that God uses them. And sometimes in an overly reformed view of God, they take a high view on God's sovereignty and they begin to ascribe all these terrible things to the nature of God. Well, if I'm sick, it must be because God sent it. If there's a plague, it must be because God did it. If there's a natural disaster, it's all God's fault. And anytime you question it, in that theological construct, it's always, well, it's just for the glory of God. But I think Calvin was wrong. I don't think the chief end of God is glory. I think the chief end of God is love. I think God receives glory, but he is love. He's filled with glory, but he is love. Which means this, I don't have to blame God for difficult things. But what I can do is in the midst of tough stuff, I can choose to allow him to use the insecure moments of my life to form this beautiful patchwork for my destiny. And we see this happening in, in Acts 18. People are uprooted from their home, chased out by government entities, persecuted to the point that they're fleeing for their lives, and yet God has a plan all along. In Corinth, Paul will meet Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla will become instrumental in the development of the church in Corinth and the growth and discipleship of key evangelists in the first century. Friend, the next time that you are tempted to complain about the season of life that you're in, just remember God does his best work in places you can't see and in seasons you can't understand. Man, if you were to read the Old Testament today, just between the book of Exodus and Leviticus, 14 different times, the Hebrew children stop their progression towards the promised land to grumble and complain against the Lord and against Moses. 14 times. 14 times. For some of us, we're about 14 times an hour. And the Bible says that the Lord keeps them out of the promise because of grumbling and complaining. Here's what's so dangerous when you develop a grumbling or complaining spirit against God is if you don't agree with him about what he says about your season, eventually he'll agree with you about what you say about your season. And I'd be careful not to say like, this season is worthless, this year is wasted. Because if you keep saying that, you might be right. And maybe the most scary thing in life is for you to be right about your own life. Right? We purchase with a price. My destiny's not my own. My future's not my own. I don't have the right to self-identify. You know, we live in a culture that says you can identify as whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And scripture says you were bought with a price. You're not your own. You gave that up. So that means I may have fallen into a temptation, but that doesn't give me that identity. That means that I may have had a bad day, but it doesn't mean I get to have a bad life. It may have been that I experienced something difficult, but I don't get to become a victim. For you and I, we give up the right to self-identify because our lives are not our own. 
And don't we love to self-identify in the West? Well, what type of Christian are you? Well, I'm a this Christian. I'm a, I'm a that Christian. I'm on the right. I'm on the left. I'm a Baptist. I'm a charismatic. I'm reformed. I'm free. We have all these things that we like to use to describe our Christianity. And if there's anything that we ought to go back to, we ought to go back to a Jesus-centric faith. What type of Christian are you? I don't even know how to answer that. A Jesus Christian? What do you mean? If we worship Jesus, we gather. Well, what type of church do you have? It's a Jesus church, and it's a little bit loud, and, and we got smoke, and we got some lights. But I, I, other than that, I'm not sure how to answer your question. Because we have reduced faith to all of these qualifiers about how we ought to self-identify. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus is interested, not in your right to identify, but in his prerogative to command your destiny. If you curse your season by saying there is no purpose, be careful. You may end up being right. I think oftentimes we use a word like coincidence to describe a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is this. God was working behind the scenes the entire time. Watch what happens in verse 3 of Acts 18. The Bible says this. And, and because Paul was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and, 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 and worked with them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Friend, let me communicate this to you this morning the best way that I know how. Vocation isn't the enemy of mission. It's the avenue. Meaning this, there's not two separate worlds that you live in. If there's something that we ought to break off of our mindset as believers, it's dualism that plagues our ability to interact with the world. We don't live in these two realities. We're like, God is really powerful here, but as soon as, you, as soon as you leave the front doors of this church, like his power is diminished by 50%. There is no atmosphere that you will ever be in that Jesus is not Lord. There will be a lot of atmospheres that you're in where there are people who don't agree with that sentiment. There's people who don't clearly see it the way that you see it. But friend, there is no atmosphere where you will ever go where Jesus is not Lord, where he is not King. So he is not more king in the church than he is down the street. Now, it's more realized here in this atmosphere because together we agree and by faith magnify the Lord. But he is not more Lord here than he is down the street. And sometimes what we've done is we've allowed ourselves to fall into this weird version of dualism, which essentially communicates to believers that you're only significant, valued, or used when you're in the church. And what I love about the Apostle Paul, the chief author of two-thirds of the New Testament, the one who we primarily draw our theology of how we understand God and how we interact with the church and all sorts of things from, uh, the, the, the most profound you know, communicator in the first century outside of Christ himself, one of the most radical transformation stories. What I love about the Apostle Paul is that Luke takes time to mention his commonality. He was a tent maker. And friend, for you and I, it is how we manage the common that sets us up to receive the supernatural. And sometimes people have these weird perceptions of like maybe what I do as a pastor or what it means to work as a church. and Like somehow like I just wake up every morning and stand up on a stage and just preach to the masses. And can I tell you that most of the time, pastoring looks rather common. It looks like managing a budget or cleaning a building or building a chair or setting up a stage. And the things that appear uncommon are less than 1% of what I do. And the things that are really common are about 99.9% .9 of what I do. 
And I think sometimes for us, because of dualism, we have this category of things that are really important, and then this category of things that aren't really important at all, and we only feel valued when we're in this camp instead of that camp. And yet scripture says that everything that your hand finds to do, do it with excellence as unto the Lord. Why? Because what makes you significant is not the job you do, it's the spirit you have. So I can be as significant as a tent maker that I can as a developer of theology for the New Testament church. And we see Paul's significance as a constant, not vacillating depending on what he's doing. Significance doesn't start when I walk through the doors of the church. It begins when I wake up to the reality of God's presence, taking residence in my life, making whatever I do matter for eternity. When God makes covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis, he tells Abraham this. He says, wherever your foot treads, I'll give you the land. Wherever you go. Why? Because what you're going with is actually what's most important. So wherever you go, Abraham, I'm giving you that place. I think sometimes for us, it's like, well, I, I only work in tech, or, or I only stay home with the kids, or, or, or I'm only serving coffee, or, or I'm, I'm only doing these things. Yeah, this is, you know, this is kind of what I, but I'm only doing that. We artificially devalue the season of life we're in because of the dualism that we've constructed in our own minds. Like, I could, if, I could if I could just work at a church or if I could just feel more significant about the job that I have, friend, if you're lonely in the world, you're going to be lonely in here. It, it, it's when you develop a value and an honor for what you're finding your hand to do in that moment that causes significance to come from your life. Tent making wasn't a spiritual gift that Paul imparted. It was a skill that he learned, and God honored what Paul had developed and used it as a mechanism of his resourcing, equipping, and mission. Now, Paul has something in common with Aquila and Priscilla. They both are tent makers. And watch, commonality breeds relationship, which leads to transformation. When you honor the common, you reap the supernatural. It's like the old joke of the man who says, God, give me money, need resource. And God responds with a job application. He goes, God, not that. I just wanted to deposit my bank account, I just, I didn't, but I didn't want the job application. And God works through the common. And you know what you'll find in your life is that the more that you engage with the common, the things that you thought were common were actually more sacred than you realized. It's like when Jesus turns water into wine. He takes the common and by his presence interjected into it makes it sacred. Can't you see your work through that lens? Well, I'm only working behind a computer screen. Well, I'm only working in this medical lab. Well, I'm only working in this environment. But can't you see that when you carry God's presence, wherever you go becomes significant? And then that way, it gives you value for your life. I'm not just working 40 years so I can retire, so I can finally do something significant. No, what I'm doing right now matters for eternity. Whether I'm making tents and it's blue collar, or whether I'm in a different environment and it's white collar, or whether I'm making a lot of money, little money, no money, whether I'm in school or staying home with the kids, what I do matters. Why? Because I'm significant. When I do it, it's under the Lord. And his presence is interjected into my common. Your water becomes wine. So a lot of us are looking for wine and God gives us water. And he says, if you'll just manage the water, if you'll allow my common to be valued in a way, watch what happens. It becomes sacred. And so for us, that, that, that's the heart that we have as it pertains to the season of life that we're in. Out of all the ways that Luke could have described Paul, he said, and Paul was a tent maker. And isn't it just interesting the way God works? 
He happens to bring a husband-wife team to the city of Corinth. And guess what? Coincidence. Guess what they also do? They make tents. And that's how they connect in the common. And it breeds the supernatural. In verse 4, the Bible says this. Every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue. He's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. I love this. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus, Justice, a worshiper of God. I saw somebody mention this on, on, on social media. Let me communicate it to you because I think it's important. The first verb ever attributed to the whole church wasn't preaching, it wasn't singing, it wasn't giving, it wasn't eating, it wasn't drinking, it wasn't even praying. The first verb ever attributed to the church comes in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves. Devoted. I think if there's something that we need more in this hour than ever before, it's Holy Spirit-inspired devotion. Because all of the world is raging against your devotion and commitment to the high ethic of Christ. It just is. And sometimes we got to make daily decisions. Wake up. Today, I'm going to be a spirit-filled believer. I know I was one yesterday, but i got to make another decision today. It's been a rough week. I'm making a decision today to be devoted. This year's crisis will fade. We need a long obedience. I love what scripture said, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, Paul left the synagogue and went next door. You know, prior to um, working uh, in, in, in a full-time ministry context, my background is politics. Many of you know that. And uh, what we would do, especially during the summer, is uh, one of my jobs was to knock on doors in people's neighborhoods and to uh, get them to register to vote if they weren't registered to vote and then inform them about the candidate that we were working for. And I worked on races that were federal, that were $20, $25 million races. We also worked on really local state house races as well. Lost a lot of them. We won a couple of them. But one thing remained the same. Every summer, we'd be knocking doors in people's neighborhoods. And you know what people hate more than anything? Is when you knock on their door on a Saturday morning to talk about politics. <laughs> people hate it. Like, really hate it. I'd been cussed at. I've been chased. I remember this one lady in specific. I'll never forget it because it's scarred in my memory. But we were in this cul-de-sac and we're knocking on the door. And uh, all of a sudden she opens the door. She doesn't come out, but her dog just starts running out. And I'm running around this cul-de-sac for the life of me. This dog is chasing me. She says, oh, he doesn't bite. He's happy. He doesn't look happy. And I'm running as fast as I can. And, 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 and finally I had all, all these pamphlets that I was handing out for our candidate. I threw them at the dog. I said, take that. Whatever. And this lady's yelling from her doorstep, quit harassing my dog. I said, your dog is chasing me. It's harassing me. Uh, and we, we had those encounters all the time. And uh, what I realized like a decade later was that God was actually preparing me for ministry. <laughs> and that um, there was actually a lot of crossover 
between some of what I encountered in those environments and, and some of what I encounter in these environments. But like in a real sense, what God developed in my life was this tenacity to have door after door after door slammed in my face and have to go to the next door and knock and hope that I could talk to somebody reasonable. And can I tell you that that quality has helped us get loans when nobody wanted to loan us money to buy this building. It helped us go to 23 banks when 22 of them said no and the 23rd said, yes, I believe in you. It's helped us build a team. It's helped us advocate for vision. It's helped me when people have left the church and said mean things and been terrible to me. And, and it, it has been a skill that God has used in my life to keep me relatively stable in this environment. And that's why it's so important that you honor the common that you're in because you never know what God is equipping you with for the future. See, Paul lands in Corinth, and the first thing he does is not plant a church, it's make tents. But God was using something in his past to empower his present to attract the right people for the vision and the transformation of that city. Man, God, God works all the time through things like this. You just meet somebody randomly, and all of a sudden they have the same interests. They went to the same school. They have the same friends, the same network. When we were in uh, uh, Vegas this week, uh, uh, with uh, I was I was in Vegas with Lighty this week, and we were ministering at ICOV uh, one of the nights, and and we're checking into the hotel, and 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 the lady says to Lighty, she goes, "I know you." I mean, Vegas is a huge city. I mean, they have millions of people, tourism. We're checking into the hotel. The lady goes, "I know you." I look at him, and I'm like, are you serious? This happens everywhere we go. People know you. She goes, you played Jesus in that play that one year, and I took a video of it, and I showed all of my friends, and we had this whole, like, conversation with her for 20 minutes, and I said, can we at least get an upgrade out of this? Can you put us in a penthouse or something? This is a man of God, you know, and so, and she didn't, she didn't, but I just thought, God has people everywhere, and they're randomly connected to the cross-section of your story, and you begin to recognize, man, that dumb thing that I was in, or that thing that I was involved with, or that job I had, now all of a sudden has become my connection piece in this present-day environment. See, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And there are enough lost people to reach in this city that I don't have time to argue with other Christians. Most of the opposition you'll face in your life won't come from the world, it will come from the religious. And you just gotta make a decision what barking dogs you wanna take care of. Because most of the time you gotta keep your eyes on the prize and just keep going. Everybody will have a professional opinion about your faith. And while they talk, you work. And while they talk, you develop. And while they talk, you just keep going in the direction that God has called you to go in. And at the end of time, he'll balance the scales. At the end of time, he'll make what was wrong right. At the end of time, he'll defend your narrative and, and defend your reputation. But you've got to make a commitment to keep your eyes on the price. I think we encounter resistance so that God can see how we respond. It, what I've found is that it actually never gets easier to follow Jesus. But the more I grow, the more tools I have to manage the conflict in my life. I think some of us like signed up for this and we're like, man, this is really rocky. Like, I hope this gets easier. It doesn't. <laughs> but what you do get is better at managing the difficult seasons of life. And you begin to recognize, man, God's actually equipped me. I got tools. You know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so you just try to use one tool for every issue in your life. And the more that you develop, the more that you grow in faith, the more you recognize, you no, know, God's equipped me with everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. I've got enough tools to manage this season in my life. You know, when we planted the church, I thought to myself, um, you know, when we planted, maybe we had 30 or 40 people, I just thought, man, if we could just grow to 100, wow, all of our problems will go away. 
You know what I found? When we grew to 100, we went from having 40 people-sized problems to 100 people-sized problems. I went to 100. I said, God, if we just get 200, I know that these problems will clear up. Guess what I found? We went to 200, and we had 200 people-sized problems. God, if we can just get a building. God gave us a building. God, if we could just get a bigger building. God gave us a bigger building. And what I found time and time and time again was that every time that I leveled up, it didn't get easier. But God's grace increased in my life and gave me better tools to manage the season that I was in. In Proverbs 24 and verse 10, the Bible says this, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Watch what happens in verse 8. The Bible says this, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. That'll disrupt a city. You know, this is actually happening right now in the Middle East. Entire mosques are getting born again. Just in a moment. Just in a moment. You'll have leaders, imams, they have these visions. They're like, who is this Jesus? People get born again. All of a sudden, an entire city, region is trying, just like that. Just like that. And Paul's getting abused and hated on. And so he goes next door and a man gets born again. His entire family gets saved. The entire synagogue gets turned around. The Bible says this, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. I love that Paul winds up in Corinth not to plant a church, but as the result of governmental persecution. And because he stays faithful to the narrative and the journey he's on, what is planted out of his purpose is a community of Christ followers. Watch this, because this is important. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. Friend, God has put people in your life not just to resource your vision, but God has put people as resources for your life, for your development, and for your transformation. That's why it's so important for you to develop meaningful relationships in this church. Because people aren't just a byproduct of the church. People aren't just the ones that you see and kind of interact with real quickly when you come in and when you come out and I'll see you next week. No, God has placed people in this house for the express purpose of your transformation, your vision, and your destiny. And people don't just provide resource, they are resources. And that's why David prays in Psalms 2. It's this prophetic, Davidic prayer, messianic in nature. He says, God, for my inheritance, give me a people. A people. I'm reminded of the story that is told in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah has confronted Jezebel and the prophets of Baal and had this incredible supernatural experience and then finds himself in the cave and he's depressed and he wants to kill himself and he's over it and he's complaining and the Lord speaks to him. He says, Elijah, I have 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And all of a sudden, Elijah's perspective changes. He goes, man, I'm not alone. And you know what happens in your spiritual life when you come to the realization that you're not alone? Yeah, I know in this crazy world it can feel like, man, am I, am I the only person who's thinking right? Am I, am I the only person who has a clear perspective or the right perspective on the events that are happening around me? 
man, it feels like in this region, ain't nobody interested in Jesus, ain't nothing happening. Is there, is there, any, is there any good thing coming out of the Northwest? Is there, is there any work that's happening here that's significant? God, am I all alone on this journey? And the same God who spoke to Paul in a vision in the city of Corinth is the same God who spoke to Elijah in a cave in 1 Kings is the same God who speaks to us in Snohomish. And he says, I've got people in this city that you haven't even met yet who are going to be instrumental in the transformation of this region. And friend, I'm here to encourage you today that for your life, for your family, for your development, God's got people as resources lined up and you don't even know their names. But God in times past has so constructed the chaotic narrative of your life to converge on this one grand idea that God has people in places that you don't even know. And that's why a gathered faith and a gathered church and a gathered Christianity is so integral to the message of Jesus. Because as we gather and as we engage and as we allow the community of God to help in the developmental process of our faith, what we recognize is that God has people in places I didn't even know existed. Northwest is a tough area to plant. This world is not designed to encourage your faith. The place where you work is probably not insulated with a bunch of encouraging news about the message of the gospel. And if we don't tune into the right voices, it's really easy to fall into a depressive view of what lays ahead. But if you could hear the words of Jesus, do not be afraid. No harm will come to you. Keep on speaking. Why? Because I am with you. I will protect you. And I've got people in this city. Friend, that could function as an encouragement for your life today. God's got people. And you're one of them. Do you know that not only does God have people for you, but you're somebody else's person. You're somebody else's resource. You're somebody else's instrumental figure in their life. You're somebody else's testimony. You're somebody else's friend who in a time of need came alongside of them and encouraged them in the way that they should go. You're somebody else's testimony about why they should have killed themselves, but they didn't because you were the right person in the right time at the right place. It's not just that God has people for us in this city. It's that we are the people that others have been waiting for in this city as well. You are the answer to somebody else's prayer. You are that other person, that other resource, and together as a community, we encourage ourselves with these words, knowing that Jesus isn't finished with us, he's not done with the church, he's not done with the region, and that our best days aren't behind us, they're ahead of us. I challenge you to believe that today. I challenge you to understand the history and the context of the church in Corinth. It wasn't awesome. It wasn't happy all the time. It wasn't brilliant all the time. It was difficult, it was tough. It was the result of massive cultural disruption. And while the world was weeping in chaos, God was working in strategy. And this God, who isn't surprised by anything that life or earth throws at him, has been weaving us together for this moment. We've been made for this. We've been made for this. God knows what you've been constructed with, friend. We've been made for this moment. You're not going to fail. You're not going to quit. You're not going to give up. 
You're not going to shrink back in fear. You're not going to give territory to the enemy. You're not going to go back to old habits. You're not going to go back to toxic relationships. You're not going to go back to past seasons of immaturity. You are going to advance. You're going to go forward. You're going to grow. You're going to win. You're going to develop. You're going to have life and life more abundantly. Friend, that is what we have been called to. And God's got people in this city. Would you stand with me as we...